Uh, we're starting things up again, and my gratitude to those who have given their time in Sunday school teachers, uh, nursery workers, our, uh, those who are helping with hospitality and cookies. Those things will just happen on their own. Uh, ushers and tech team, worship team, all those things coming into play. And uh, I'm grateful for those of you who have made that investment in the, in the kingdom. It, it takes a lot of work and a lot of preparation and, and people um, contributing to that. And uh, I myself, again, if we've not met, I'm, I'm the senior pastor, Nathan, and uh, I've been out of the pulpit for the last five weeks. The elder board has graciously given me a, a time kind of a study period before we start the, the ministry year in earnest. And so I'm grateful for those who have filled the pulpit to Jim Cluth, uh, to uh, John Steer and him filling for two weeks for us. What a great time of focusing on heaven. To Neil Johnson, are now no longer new, uh, next-gen pastor, kind of helping set the table for a time of celebration and baptism. And then John Downer, kind of getting us ready to be the church as we head into this fall. And so I'm grateful. It gave me some time to study. It gave me some time to help prepare for this year. Also help with ministries getting ready, but here we go in earnest. Now, if you're with us this summer, you know that we were in the book of Judges. And uh, we're not going to finish the last five chapters today. Okay? Um, the the byword in, or the, uh, I guess the verse or the theme that runs throughout Judges is this. And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And unfortunately, that came to be true over and over again. A pattern where we see when people do their own thing, not listen to God and His Word, they experience a world of hurt. And God raises up people to kind of help alleviate that, and then we fall back into that pattern. And unfortunately, when you get to the end of Judges, that pattern never really changes. In fact, it's, it's pretty discouraging. And it's there for our, our warning. It's there for us to know that that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And we may get to those last five chapters in the future. But we're not going to be there today. Because it may cause us to be discouraged. The ironic thing about Judges is even though that book happened thousands of years ago, our world is very much like it today. People are doing what is right in their own eyes. And we might feel, as we look around, reasons to be discouraged. <laughs> you know, Joel's off on the beach, and I'm glad you had that time with your, your granddaughter. What a great time. But we could be discouraged by what happened in Afghanistan. We could be discouraged even by remembering what happened 20 years ago on September 11. We might be discouraged by the political you know, disunity in, our, in our, our nation, racial division, division over the COVID issue. Maybe we got discouraged by some of the national, national, natural disasters this summer. Fires. Uh, you know, our own uh, 
Christy Reynolds, her daughter Molly, her house was flooded by Ida out in New Jersey. Those could be reasons to get discouraged. Could be reasons to get discouraged. But we don't have to be. We don't have to lose our joy. And that's what we're going to be talking about this fall. How do we keep our joy? You see, when our happiness is contingent on circumstances, when the circumstances go south, we lose that happiness, right? But it's based on something else, something that's unchangeable, something that is solid, something that's outside of ourselves even, based on a God who doesn't change, based on a God who has not left us alone, based on a God who has not abandoned us, then we can have reason for joy. And that foundation comes in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, our, we're going to open up our, a series in the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open them up there. And we're going to look at a letter written by one of the most influential followers of Jesus Christ. But the circumstances that he's experiencing, as he even writes the letter, could lead him to be discouraged. And to whom he's writing the letter could cause them to be discouraged. And yet, he is pointing to a reason, reasons to have joy. It's a very affectionate letter. Paul is intimately involved in the founding of the church of Philippi. But within this four-chapter letter, Paul says, rejoice, or have joy, 14 times. And so we're going to see that as we look at this letter today. On one hand, it's kind of weird because we probably feel like we're reading someone else's mail. It's like, oh, okay. Because there were, there were specific you know, circumstances, a specific time, a specific people. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this is God's Word. And we find we are much like the Philippians. Maybe we have a, a culture that sometimes is hostile to our faith. We're much like the Philippians that we're not exempt to hardship or trials and circumstances. But our focus and the reason for our joy can be that of the Lord Jesus. If you're in Christ, you have great reason for joy. So, Let's take a moment to pray before we get into God's love letter for us, and then we'll dive in. So Lord, I'm grateful for how you've started out this new year, and how you've met us and been so faithful. And now would you open the eyes of our heart to see what you want to show us, and the reasons for joy that you've given us. And that is in your Son, Lord, the Lord Jesus. So as we have already sung, come Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart. Help us to see the Lord Jesus for who He really is. God, open the eyes of our heart that we may respond to You in spirit and in truth. And Lord Jesus, it's in Your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy... 
servants of Christ Jesus to all God's people, holy people, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our Lord, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until, until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the opening words here is what is really an example of Greco-Roman polite correspondence. There's a few forms and elements that, that come into play. But Paul fills what might seem to be perfunctory or polite form with eternal, and dare I say, joyful significance. So the first item that you hear is not dear so-and-so, it's who is this letter from? And he says, Paul and Timothy. Back in Acts 16, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke go to the Macedonian city of Philippi. And they proclaim the gospel there. These are the guys that brought the good news of Jesus Christ to that city, to that church. Paul, in essence, is their spiritual father. He's their first pastor. And Paul and Timothy is Paul's protege. He's his kind of spiritual son, his sidekick, who was right there when all this is happening. So Paul and Timothy have a very intimate relationship with this church. There's a connection there. It's like many of us who have a connection with orphans in Haiti or in, in Enri. We have a relationship with them. We've invested in them. And so this is what's happening. It's a great connection and affection. But here's how they describe themselves. Servants of Jesus Christ. The NIV is kind of, I would say, soft in that translation. Because the word, the Greek word that's used there, and I don't often bust out Greek words on you, but I'm going to do it today, is the word doulos. And the word means bond slave. You see, a servant might be able to, you know, if he doesn't like this, he can leave. It's like, eh, I'm, I'm done with this. A bond servant has a bond or a connection to a master. You can't leave. You were there. <laughs> you were bonded to the master. You know, to modern day ears, maybe that's not really appealing because we put a lot of emphasis on our own freedom, our own flexibility, and we also have the specter of American uh, slavery. It's there. We can't deny that. But here's what I want to point to and what I think Paul's trying to point to. That being a slave to the right master results in joy. Being a slave to the right master results in joy. You see, first century bond servitude or bond slavery 
is a little different than what we experience here in America. And also understand that in that day, life was a bit precarious. You were only one natural disaster away from being destitute. Your whole crop could be wiped out. Your whole livelihood could be wiped out. And there was no welfare system. There was no, you know, uh, whatever we went through in the COVID, these PPP things where, you know, they're going to restore your, your, your salary. That wasn't happening. No, if you didn't have family or people around you to take care of you, you were one step away from starvation and destitution. And so if you connected with a master, if he purchased you, you had a place to belong. You had a place where you could be protected. You had a place where you could be cared for and a place where you could even thrive. You know, in this system, people would have bond slaves who were their teachers to their children. And they could thrive. They'd be managers of their household. They'd hire artisans to be, you know, make great art or skilled workers. It was a place where you could actually thrive and make a living and even eventually, you know, leave uh, the, the work under the master. But it wasn't just grunt work. And also the master of the house that you served impacted your social status. You know, you may be just a stable boy or a kitchen girl. But if you were from a great house, with a great, with a great master, you could hold your head high in the public square. I serve this master. And it gives me a sense of importance, a sense of status. Hmm. How much more for those of us who are servants of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Has it ever occurred to you what it means to be a bondservant of Jesus? that what that says about who you belong to and your status. You belong to the King of Kings. That's an amazing thing. Now, you know, there's much more to say about our relationship with Christ. It's not just bound up in being a bondservant when you come to your faith in Christ, all right? I mean, multiple things. Even Paul says that we are beloved, chosen, adopted children of God. What an amazing thing. That we are co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with our Master, if you will. And Jesus himself would tell us in John 15, 15, that, look, I no longer call you servants, because servants don't know what their Master is doing. And I've made that known to you, what I've learned from my Father, which is to make disciples. That's what I'm about. But here's what Paul is trying to drive home with this whole doulos concept. This whole bondservant thing is that the interest of the servant is the interest of the master or let me reverse that what interests the master interests the servant what's important to the master is what's important to the servant what the priority of the master is is the priority of the servant we're going to find out a little bit later in this chapter in verse 7 that Paul, the bondservant, is in prison. 
for the sake of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? He seems to be okay with that. He doesn't like being in jail. He doesn't like being in prison. But he finds a reason for joy in it. Because it's advancing the Master's interests. How about you? How about me? Do we get our priorities mixed up sometimes? You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, perhaps maybe we think, well, in exchange for my faithful following you, Jesus, you owe me a good life. Good circumstances to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. Make my kids turn out okay. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless obedience. He does. But when our circumstances don't work out in the moment, are we going to be angry or sad and shake our fist at God saying, this isn't what I signed up for? No. The interests of the Master need to be interests of the servant. It can't be contingent on our interests. Because we'll lose our joy. And here's a secret to life, and I know I've said this from this pulpit before, but the truth of the matter is, when I'm thinking about me, when I'm focused on me and what makes me happy, I'm usually one of the most miserable persons in the world. I know that's true of all of us. Paul didn't look for his joy in comfort, wealth, or being well-liked. He found his joy in the interests of the Master. That's why I'm saying you can find joy and following the right master. And it's not as though Paul didn't experience, you know, blessing and disappointment in life. He did. But he was living for something greater. That is the joy of the master. I think for some of us, when we think about the thought of saying, Jesus is my master. I'm going to follow him and follow his interests. Our fear is, he's going to rip us off. He's going to say, ha, I've been waiting for this. Now I'm going to send you someplace you don't want to go. I'm going to do something to you that you don't want to do. And I'm not saying that, that Jesus won't challenge us in our desires. But we have to look at the nature of our Master. He doesn't ask us to surrender ourselves to Him in order that He can make our lives miserable. He wants to do it to give us life, to give us joy. Jesus, when he comes, he says, look, the thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy in John 10.10, but I have come. Then I can give you life and give it to the full. In his famous passage about the branches abiding in the true vine, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And I have told you these things that your joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Does that sound like the, the voice of a tyrant? Of someone who's trying to dominate you and abuse you? No. It's a loving master that wants us to experience life. That wants us to experience His Joy. Here's the question, though. It's the question every week. Do we believe Him? 
Do we believe that He wants to give us life? That He wants to give us joy? Do we trust Him beyond our own understanding? Beyond what we can see? Beyond even what we've experienced? I know I've spent my half, half my message talking about this whole concept of being a bondservant. But I want to ask you, especially if you have put your faith in Christ, and you kind of go, you know, I don't have a whole lot of joy in my life. I want to ask you the question, who's your master? Who's your master? Is it indeed the Lord Jesus? Or is it secretly yourself or something else i'm not here to point the finger folks so i'm asking the same question in my own heart and life where's my joy coming from who's the master because jesus wants to give us his joy and here's also one other thing i, I want to point out i'm kind of stealing my, some thunder from what's going to happen a little bit later but that's okay I don't mind repeating myself later. He himself took on the role as a bondservant. We're going to get to chapter 2, and this is what it says, verses 6 through 8, talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of of a servant. That is that word doulos, that bond servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. You see, he's the master who gave himself. He's the master who knows what it's like to be a servant. And he's the master who's worth following. Okay. Next part of the form letter. To who were the recipients? Second half of verse 1. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. So let's start with Philippi. This is a city that is up now in modern day northern eastern Greece. You've got the Aegean Sea, it's a little faded, it's hard to see, but. Um, over here is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This is, this is where this message comes. The thing about Philippi is this. It was a Roman, I sh- I sh- excuse me, it was a, actually a Greek town, originally col- colonized by Greeks called Cnidus or Sinaitis. And then Philip of Macedon took it over. He was Alexander the Great's father. And he took it because it was was a strategic location. It had a a large Acropolis, a raised area that he could defend it. And it was near uh, a port city called Neapolis. So it was, was and there were two trade roads. So it was a pretty strategic place. But years later, after the Roman uh, Empire conquered the the Greeks and the Macedonians, what's left, then came Caesar Augustus. And he had a war against Brutus. And I can't remember the other, the other general. But basically, there was a war near there. And after winning, he took this, this area, this Philippi, 
and said, you legions who followed me, this is your inheritance. You get Philippi. It's going to be a Roman colony. And I'm going to give it to you, and you'll have all the rights as a Roman citizen here. And, you know, but you won't have to fight for, for uh, property in Rome. It's a fertile area, and this is your, this is your retirement. This is your uh, blessing, if you will, from Caesar Augustus. And then years later, he had another, he had another battle with Mark Anthony, because everyone's still trying to figure out who's in charge in the Roman Empire. And what he did was he gave that land also to his men, but also Mark Anthony's soldiers, because they were Roman legions as well. So he won over his enemies, if you will. So there was a great feeling of debt to Caesar, to Caesar Augustus. And then later on this time, it's, it's, it's Nero, who's, who's the Caesar. But this is a little Rome, if you will. We have Roman citizenship. This is our identity. And our, our allegiance is to Caesar. And so think about the conflict that takes place when you've got the Roman citizen saying, Caesar is Lord. And the followers of Jesus say, no, Jesus is Lord. This is the arena in which this letter is written. So, this is to all God's holy people in Christ. Literally, the saints. Not super Christians, nor a team in New Orleans, but those who are set apart by faith in Christ Jesus. A righteousness that is not their own, but being in Christ a right standing before God. So it's not these people who have kind of put their faith in Jesus and cleaned up their acts. It is Jesus has given him them his righteousness and is transforming them and changing them. So he includes all, all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. So this seems to be the whole church, right? But then he brings in, and also the overseers, Literally in the Greek, the Episkopos, where the Episcopalian church gets their name from. Overseers. These are the pastors, the elders, the spiritual leaders, and also the deacons, which literally means table servants, which we first meet in Acts chapter 6 with Stephen and many others. But these are people in the church assigned to meet people's physical needs, to minister to people. They're the hands and feet. They're the people that says, what, there's a need? Okay, we'll go out and do this. We'll go out and do this. So, all the saints, the overseers, the deacons, why is, it, why is this here? Why couldn't just all the saints have covered it? Because... Paul is saying to the, the leaders and to the servants, I need you to pay attention to this. I need you to buy into this. I need you to grasp on to this. Because, you know, after this letter is written, this needs to continue, this spirit of what I'm talking about. So what does it look like to be a leader? a pastor, an elder of a church. 
and yet be a bondservant of Christ. You know what? That's not about power grabbing. That's not about self-promotion. It's not about you, you know, promoting your own brand or going up the, up the chain of command. You become a bondservant to Christ to serve His people. What does it mean to be a table servant as a bondservant of Christ? It means that even if people don't respond in gratitude, you're serving Him. October 10, we have a great opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus in town. It's going to be awesome. I hope you're looking forward to it. I hope you're considering how God might call you to serve. But there might be a moment where someone is a bit demanding. You're being a servant, a deacon, if you will, and you're being treated like one. Hey, how about another cup of coffee, huh? Hey, you missed a spot where you're painting. You know, or maybe someone is not so nice to your car and they run over a, a curb over here if you're teaching driving. How are you going to feel about that? If that person treats you like a table servant. At the end of the day, your joy can't be <laughs> in serving that person. It has to be in serving the Lord. I'm your bond servant. Give me great joy in you. It's his interests that we're serving, not our own. Next, the salutation, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now perhaps a, an initial glance, it just seems like well wishes. It's like Spock in Star Trek, live long and prosper. But there's so much more meaning here. It's harnessed to point to what God has done. It is a joy rooted in grace. Grace that is God's undeserved favor in the saving work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, extended to sinful men and women, rebels against the living God who've decided to go their own way. Who that, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we're talking about when we talk about grace. We did not deserve it. In fact, we're quite undeserving. But is that grace that brings peace and reconciliation to a holy God for those who will put their faith in Christ? And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, it sets a firm foundation for a stage for joy. Knowing in what He has done to restore us, to reconcile us, and to bring us back to Himself. When's the last time that you just rejoiced in your salvation? When's the last time you rejoiced in the grace that you have received? I love telling people about Jesus, but sometimes I need to tell myself about what He's done for me. When's the last time you have experienced the joy of your salvation? 
Yeah, preach the gospel, but preach it to yourself. There's a reason for joy there, to root this in grace. And I, I don't know everyone here, and maybe you're just investigating the faith in, in Christ. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe this whole talk of being a bond slave to Christ is like, ooh, this is a cult. Ooh, this is scary. No. And if, if you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, I, you know, I can understand that. that. That doesn't make sense to you. But he is a good master. And if you're wrestling with this, and, and you have honest intellectual questions, you know what? There are answers to that. Are you willing to wrestle with those questions? And to wrestle them down and find the answers. But here's, here's the question I have for you. If I'm able to answer those questions, if we're able to answer those questions, are you willing to say yes to Jesus? Are you willing to say yes, come into my life. Change me. Have your way in me. Be my master, Lord Jesus. Because I think sometimes we hide behind intellectual problems. What we're really wanting to do is say, I I just don't want you in charge, Jesus. Because I'm afraid of what you might do if you're in charge. And I'm telling you, my friends, it's out of my personal life, He's a good, He's a kind Master. He wants to give you life. He is giving us who are following Him life. And if you have received Him, you have received his grace again is he your source of joy or are you looking to earthly circumstances because they're going to disappoint you they're going to change and this one this is why this letter is here to point us to the real source of joy the real source of peace and it's not contingent upon circumstances and ultimately this is good news it's what the, we call the gospel. And we're not talking about gospel music per se as a, as, a, as a style, but rather a message. Verse 3, And I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Joy found in the fellowship of the gospel. Again, the word gospel means good news. And yes, that starts with what God has done in Christ. But here it also means what God did to orchestrate the gospel coming to Philippi. Again, in Acts chapter 16, I pointed out to the map, right? Paul was originally trying to go down to Asia Minor. That's where he thought he's going to bring the good news. That's where he's going to bring the gospel. And then you know what happened? The Holy Spirit says, no. Stop. Don't go there. And that seems confusing to us. What do you mean? Don't go and preach the gospel in Asia Minor? No, don't go there. Stop. 
But Paul says, okay, Lord Jesus, you're the master. I'm the servant. And so I will stop. And then he gives him a vision, a dream, to go up to Macedonia to bring the gospel. And he brings it. He takes it there. And what's interesting, if you think about this, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he was originally Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. A man, a Jewish man, zealous for the things of the Jewish people. Which meant actually staying away from the Gentiles. In fact, he didn't like the gospel message until Jesus got a hold of him. And he got a hold of him and he takes this gospel message to a people that would be naturally his enemies. They're Romans for crying out loud. And they respond. They respond to the grace that is given to, to them. It's pretty amazing to think of how this all is orchestrated by God himself. Yeah, the gospel will go to Philippi. But, I mean, it, it will go to Ephesus, but it needs to go to Philippi first in God's perfect direction, God's perfect timing, God's perfect purpose. And so he brings the message. He meets some women by the river because there's no Jewish synagogue there. He preaches the gospel to them. They respond. A woman named Lydia says, Hey, I, I want to put my faith in Jesus, and if you consider me a servant of the Lord, then come live with me. And he does. Paul and the crew come live with them. And the gospel spreads. And then they get arrested. They get arrested for casting out a demon out of a young lady who's telling fortune. She's in bondage. And Paul could have said, Jesus, this is a horrible idea. I didn't sign up for this. But that wasn't his attitude. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He and Silas are singing praises in the prison after being beaten. And you know what happens? The fellow prisoners are listening. The prison guard is listening. And an earthquake comes. And the prison guard is afraid that everyone's left. But no one is left. And they lead him to salvation. And so all this Paul remembers with fondness. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Time has passed. Their faith has stood the test of time. And he says, because of your partnership, because of your fellowship, it's the word we get the word koinonia from. In the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship. A commonality. We have Jesus in common. <laughs> Former enemies. Now we have Jesus in common. It changed Paul's life, it changed the Philippians' life. When I was in high school, I ran into Bill. Bill was a stoner. What that means is he regularly took opportunities to smoke marijuana, drink alcohol, and kind of be a bully. I was a good church kid, right? I didn't want to have anything to do with Bill. In fact, we ran into each other in the 
locker room and he dropped a book and I made a wiseacre crack like smooth move x lax or something like that. And he threatened to do something to me. But you know what? About a month later, someone in my youth group picked him up as, as he was hitchhiking, shared the gospel with him, and Bill responded. And all of a sudden, he's coming to my youth group. What do I do with this kid I didn't like? Because he had received grace. And even though I was a good church kid, I needed Jesus' grace as well. Let me get to the end of the story. I was best man in Bill's wedding. We just talked last week. He's still following Jesus. We have fellowship in the gospel. And even what our brother Chris was talking about earlier. We have invested heavily in Henry and Limbe. We, you know, pray that these, these orphans would grow up to follow and serve Christ. And then we're cut off from them for three years. Praying, Lord, don't let them turn away. Lord, let them hold on to their faith. And you know what happens? The Lord is still growing them apart from us. It's amazing to hear. Curlin's going up and setting up a VBS in Henry. The people in Henry are reaching out to their city to reach them for Christ. You see, it's not because of our efforts. It's because of what God has started in them. That He's bringing to completion. Whether we ever go back there ever again, we have fellowship in the gospel. In verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, what God started by grace, he's going to complete by grace. And that's something I want you to lean into. In those moments where you're faced with your feet of clay, or maybe you've been unfaithful to Christ. Or maybe you've not lived up to His name. But still say, what He has started in me, He's going to bring to completion. To have that confidence in what He is doing. And that is a great reason to rejoice. That's a great reason to rejoice. It's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. It's upon what He is doing. So, as we've just looked at the beginning, verse 6 verses of this letter, kind of gone through the, the form letter of this, it builds a foundation for joy. A foundation for joy to serve the right master that wants to give me life, who wants to give me joy. A foundation to rejoice in the grace we've received. And a foundation to rejoice in the fellowship we have in the gospel. To be encouraged about what Jesus is doing in you. What he's doing in me. And know that he's going to bring that to completion. Maybe all we have is Christ. But that is enough. It's something to rejoice in. So let me pray and then I would like to ask the worship team to come and help us respond in worship. 
So Lord Jesus, I thank You for this great letter of joy. That maybe we don't even feel it now, but we can rejoice in who You are. So grow us in our ability to focus on what You have done and what You are doing and what You're going to continue to do. We're grateful that You've called us to be Your slaves, to be Your servants, because You want to give us life. You want to give us joy. And if there's somebody here who does not know You, Lord Jesus, I pray You be drawing that man, that woman to Yourself and help us to be a part of that, that process and helping them to come to know You. We're grateful for You, Lord Jesus. In You we have life. It's your name I pray these things. Amen.